What if 16-year-old Alice fell into that famous rabbit hole and discovered that Wonderland is actually a dystopian world? A place where you must survive the annual and deadly Wonderland trials, then confront the looking glass illusion. Sarah Ella, author of these two whimsical fantasy adventures, joins Lorehaven to explore how fictional stories reflect curious realities. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the completely sensible, sensical podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm Steamer Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm the Cheshire Zach, and this is episode 180, How Can Creative Stories Reflect Curious Realities, The Looking Glass Illusion. Oh, what a curious dad pun there. Excellent. <laughs> Very well done. Zach and I don't plan these things out before we start recording. I am quite fond of that one, Zach. Are you a big fan of Alice in Wonderland and the Carol verse or the Doge Sun verse or, or whatever yeah, we are to call it? I am. You know, Stephen, I was actually thinking back to the year the iPad came out. This is like 2010. Oh, that was just a brand new type of thing, you know, a, a screen that was a, a computer all on its own and you could move it around and it would do things. And they actually made an Alice in Wonderland enhanced book, I think is what they called it. So it was not just an ebook, but. Oh, that's was, what the E stands for. Yeah. Okay. Oh, the E is electronic, but th this was like more than that. It, it was like a book that would, it was interactive. And so I remember, you know, when, when Alice uh, has to take the drink, the potion. You had to tilt the screen a certain way, and then like her mouth was at the bottom, and you had to kind of guide the the potion into her mouth, and then you could you could shake it, and it would do something else. And you know, it's been so long, I don't really remember, but that was just this whimsical, magical way to read a book. And I thought, you know, we're we're in the future now. This is, uh, but but we're back in a fairy tale all at the uh -huh. same time. Zach, you mentioned whimsical, and I have to confess something. Now, we've just had some rain finally here in Central Texas, so maybe the drought is over, but it's washing all of the terrible dust and irritants out of the air and into my face. Uh, but if that's not bad enough, then also, I must confess, I have an allergy, a story allergy, one might say, to excessive oh. whimsy. And I don't, uh, I'm not proud about this, but usually if there's a story that's based on nothing but whimsy or whimsy for its own sake, uh, then I get congested and then maybe I want to uh, take a, a volume of medications and find another genre. I think we'll find here uh, that Sarah Ella's books are a little different from that. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with excessive whimsy. It's just not my thing. But if it is your thing or if it is not your thing, if you like whimsy to have a point and a purpose, then I think this is the show for you. Zach, we mentioned a few times that you've been on an away mission over the last uh, couple of episodes. Uh, not speaking of whimsy, uh, but I uh, believe you have a little bit of an update there before we get started. Yeah. So in our family recently, we've been celebrating the life of my sister, Nicole, who passed away on September 3rd from cancer. And so we will have a whole episode dedicated to her in, in tribute. And we will be studying another whimsical classic tale, The Wizard of Oz, because Nicole was a super fan of this story and not just the movie, but every adaptation that's ever been made, every book that L. Frank Baum wrote, she's got them all on her bookshelf. So we thought, you know what, Let, let's honor her memory by discussing this story, the truths that we find there to tell our audience a little bit more about her. She's uh, my only sister. And so we're, we're obviously uh, really grieving her loss, but you know, she was one of those people that 
never felt sorry for herself and just made the world a lot brighter. So we will, um, we'll be celebrating her in a few weeks. Well, Zach, I look forward to that. Uh, we've been planning that episode for just a bit uh, since Nicole's passing. And for those of you who don't know, Zach and I are actually fairly local. Uh, so this is one of those podcasts where we're not in different states or countries, uh, even though some of our guests uh, might be stepping through a portal from elsewhere. I only got to meet uh, Nicole once, but uh, her love for this particular kind of whimsical fantasy seemed to coincide perfectly, not just with this episode, uh, but with the chance to explore uh, the Wizard of Oz, just as fans. I mean, we're not going to have uh, L. Frank Baum or a descendant in here, as, as far as we know, unless you, oh, faithful listener, know somebody. If so, uh, send us that <laughs> send us uh, that contact info. So we'll probably need to actually, Zach, kind of think of it, group that episode in this one, uh, maybe into another one of our micro-series on the podcast. We just got done with our Back to Magic School series, but now it's time for a little escapism. Uh, you may get into the routine, back to school, back to work, whatever. Uh, now you suddenly wonder, like, is that all there is to life going through all these routines? Like everything is so structured and sensible. Don't we need some nonsense every once in a while? Uh, that's what uh, Alice in Wonderland is about. And uh, to some extent, uh, there's some of that in The Wizard of Oz as well. So looking forward to that one. Our top sponsor, once again, is Enclave Publishing. They have a new release as of today, even though it's Talk Like a Pirate Day on September 19th. The new release is the Looking Glass Illusion Book Two in the Curious Realities series. Alice is not prepared to face what awaits beyond the told you would. When she and the rest of Team Heart enter the fourth and final Wonderland trial, it's up to her to lead them to victory. But this trial is more than a game. If Alice and the others fail to defeat the Jabberwock and reveal the truth about Wonderland, more than points and fame will be lost. Enclave Escape presents the Looking Glass Illusion Book 2 in the Curious Realities series by Sarah Ella, Available today wherever fantastic books are sold. Order now online or ask for it at your favorite bookseller or your local library. It's also available in audio from Oasis Audio. You can get more information in our show notes for episode 180 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors for links to this and all the other sponsors in this episode. From there, I hear the telltale sign of a wardrobe door creaking open. I think Sarah's coming in from Magical Land. Once upon a time, Sarah Ella dreamed she would marry a prince and live in a castle. Now she spends her days homeschooling her three Jedi in training, braving the Arizona summers, and reminding her superhero husband that it's almost Christmas, even if it's only January. When she's not writing, Sarah might be found behind her camera lens or planning her next adventure in the Great Wide somewhere. She is a Hufflepuff who finds joy in the simplicity of sipping a lavender white mocha and singing Disney tunes in the car. Sarah is the author of the Unblemished Trilogy, and Coral, a reimagining of The Little Mermaid that focuses on mental health, and her latest novels are The Curious Realities Duology, starting with The Wonderland Trials that released in 2022, and finishing, as of today, with The Looking Glass Illusion that just released, and Sarah has graced us with her princessy presence in the studio. Sarah, so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for coming in, Sarah. My teenage daughters are big fans of The Wonderland Trials. And uh, they'll probably be really embarrassed that I don't know this, but what is a Jabberwock? A Jabberwock is a dragon-like creature, similar to a dragon, has uh, sharp talons and fangs and, and all of that. It's a very scary type of, of dragon, I guess you could describe it that way. Okay, so it's a bad dragon. It's, it's yeah, bad. not a good dragon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I still remember you talked a lot about uh, Disney there, uh, Sarah, but I still remember for the live-action Alice in Wonderland, which 
also played some with the dystopian themes. And of course, they played up Johnny Depp a whole lot more than, you know, Alice in Wonderland. There was a Jabberwock at the end, and I think there was a boss battle. And he was voiced uh, fairly briefly yet memorably by the late Sir Christopher Lee. And I still remember seeing a behind the scenes video where he said he tried to give the Jabberwock like some kind of a particular voice, whereupon the director, Tim Burton, just said, I just want you to sound like Christopher Lee. So just play it straight. And I think Christopher Lee was a little disappointed there. The books that you've written, though, take a different take uh, with Alice story. So that's where I would like to start with chapter one. Some of this, I imagine, Sarah, will fit in some of your backstory about what led you to fantastic truth and biblical uh, imagination. Uh, But what ideas and pictures led you to Wonderland and just to your creative uh, choices in general? Well, I love games, and Alice has always been a huge part of my life. I played Alice at Walt Disney World in college. I've always loved Alice in Wonderland. And uh, Alice is just, she's curious, but she's also very no-nonsense, which is very much how I am. But I love games, and I love stories that have to do and center around games, the Hunger Games, Ready Player One. Movies or stories like that have always been something really fun for me, and my family loves games. And so when I was thinking about what retelling I wanted to write, Alice in Wonderland felt very natural to me as I played Alice, and Wonderland was a land I wanted to explore. What did my Wonderland look like? Whereas we have a lot of Alice in Wonderland retellings that do focus on the darker side of things that kind of question, is Alice insane? And there are insane asylums, and the Mad Hatter is actually mad. I wanted to focus more on the whimsy and fun of the story, and so that's where the idea for having the dystopian portal type fantasy that the Wonderland Trials became came into play where Alice actually has to find Wonderland and it's almost like this virtual reality type realm which was really fun and it kind of explores the ideas of what is real and what is kind of being put in front of her to make it seem like it's real and she kind of has to decide what is truth and what is fiction and so I think all of that of course plays into my faith in Jesus Christ. And we have to, as Christians, discern truth from lies. And the only way that way that we can do that is by standing upon what we know is true and what biblical truth is. And in a way, Alice has to, to figure that out on her own as she finds Wonderland and figures out what is truth and what are the lies. Yeah. Well, You've answered one of my biggest questions, or at least my daughter's question, which is how many more books there will be. So it sounds like there will be just one more book, which, uh, okay, that's okay. She'll read it probably three or four times, just like she read (laughs) book one. But uh, I'm excited that's going to be coming out soon. But I like what you said, that there is such a thing as truth. You know, that that is really the underlying message, that you go to this weird, crazy world uh, and, okay, well, what's what's real and what's not? What's... uh, sane and what's insane but that presupposes that there is a sane reality that there is a true reality an objective reality we've talked on this podcast before about the influence of philosophies like postmodernism and how there's this idea that there's no foundations it's just that ever-shifting world like in um dr strange movie where he's just going through all these just illusions upon illusions i i like that that this that alice is searching for wonderland that a true and beautiful place to find solace in. 
Yeah, we actually uh, name-checked uh, Humpty Dumpty, which is probably a first for the podcast, uh, back in episode <laughs> 153. And I, I thought of your books at that time, uh, Sarah, and I knew that this might come up when we talked with you later on for the new release of The Looking Glass Illusion. Um, I think I actually beat, uh, accidentally, our guest uh, to the punch in uh, referencing the famous uh, uh, endorsement by Humpty Dumpty of moral relativism and deconstructionism in his quote, when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master. That's all. And we took that in an extremely thinky direction uh, along with our guest, uh, Michael Young, who calls himself vocal distance and talks a lot about deconstructionism and all these uh, $10 words. Um, an extremely dense and yet very helpful discussion, by the way. I highly recommend it. So there's room for some word play and, you know, morality play and some philosophy, even in a nonsense world like Alice in Wonderland. And yet I'm interested that you did take that in this in this different direction, which I find helpful because if I'm not careful, then I'll go into, you know, the land of $10 words and dense philosophy and I'll get stuck and then have to have somebody pull me out with a hook. Uh, whereas I personally struggle with whimsy, uh, Sarah, I actually have like, I would say almost, uh, it's a story allergy. Like I, 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 oh man, that's, that's whimsical. Like Lacey and I try to watch a show and I'm like, I can't get past the whimsy. And like, it's not that I want everything to be all dark and despairing and nihilistic. Um, but whimsy for its own sake is I think really the thing uh, that I struggle with. And yet it sounds like you're finding more of the meaningfulness uh, in in the happiness and the whimsy, along with some other themes in in your duology. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know how. I think that's just part of my personality and part of my brand that just comes across naturally in my writing. Because while I do explore dark themes, I mean, I wrote a book about mental health and mental illness and what that looks like with coral. But I always want to have that message of hope. And I really think whimsy, in its simplest form and in its best form, really is just to bring hope and light. Because where you have darkness, you have to be able to have the opposite and contrast to that of light because without darkness or light together you're not going to have one or the other what is darkness if you don't have light and what is light if you don't understand what darkness is and so i think whimsy kind of lends to that um because it's fun games are fun and wonderland is fun but at the same time there's that more serious tone of exploring truth and it's it's funny that you mentioned Humpty Dumpty because there is a scene in the first book in the Wonderland trials where Alice enters this hospital and she comes across um this nurse Dumpty who is kind of telling her the same thing that quote that you said and Alice has to figure out like is this hospital real am i in is what i'm seeing real or is it something that's been portrayed to me and so what you're saying about you know, words having meanings, and we can come up with our own meanings and our own truth. I just think that's a picture of what the world wants us to believe. But of course, we know as Christians that that's absolutely not true, that words do have meanings, that there is truth, and there is one truth. And I think that's something that um, through all the whimsy around her, Alice still has to explore the true, deeper meaning of that. You mentioned uh, games that you love. So what, uh, what what's a whimsical game or a whimsical story that, that you've enjoyed? Uh, by yourself, with your family, with friends, uh, like exploding kittens or something like that? 
We do love exploding kittens. Uh, we do. Uh, I'm going to be very uninteresting and say that actually one of my favorite games is a game called Color Brain. It's a card game and we have the Disney version. And because I'm a very visual person, uh, I remember things very visually. And the whole purpose of the game is everybody has a hand of color cards. And then you put a card down on the table and it will ask you to remember the colors of Cinderella's dress or the colors of the Tweedle's bow tie. And it'll tell you how many colors you have to put down. Everybody puts down their colors face down and then you all flip them over. And then if you get all the colors right for that particular thing, then you win points. And I always win that game. So I, I really love that game. It's a lot of fun. That's great. One of our favorite games in our family that, especially when our kids were younger, was Pie Face. Just total whimsical game where all you do is just, you know, do this little dial. And if you get it wrong, you get a pie in the face. And similarly, uh, we have a game called the Crocodile Dentist. And it's just this little crocodile. You open its mouth and you click its little teeth one by one. So it's like hot potato. And at some point, the, you know, crocodile is going to bite your hand. So there's, there's no point to either one of these games. It's just about a, like a practical joke that you, you know, willingly play on yourself or others. Sometimes there's just a place for that. There's just a place for games that are just purely fun. They don't have to be important, which, uh, as we've talked about before, that's my story allergy is stories that take themselves too seriously and have to be so important. Well, I, I'm at once in favor of stories that are earnest or sincere, but that can cross over into being self-serious or self-aggrandizing. You know, I'm so important. I am high art. You know, that's the wrong kind of serious. Now, famously, I don't like movies that are just stepping all over their own premise with flippancy and fourth wall breaking and, you know, little barbs designed to self-roast the movie before the critics can roast it. Uh, but I also advocate uh, the best kind of whimsy, you know, the best kind of lightheartedness. And it, it almost seems kind of corny even to just to say it in that way, because sometimes it's, it's more of a color or a scent or a demeanor. You can't really pin it down with words, but sometimes it helps. And G.K. Chesterton knew that. And one of his famous quotes is angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. And then later, a little later on, uh, he says, uh, solemnity flows out of men naturally, but laughter is a leap. It is easy to be heavy, hard to be light. Satan fell by the force of gravity. Uh, that's a direct quote. And by the last part, he doesn't mean uh, a natural force that actually influenced the devil, but more that Satan, through his pride and arrogance, became heavy. He could no longer, in the good way, not take himself seriously. Uh, he became so weighty and so important and so consumed with himself uh, that it becomes almost a spiritual equivalent of a black hole that collapses in on itself. Too much gravity. Now no light can escape. Uh, all cosmological metaphors aside, uh, Sarah, I'm guessing that some of these ideas flowed more naturally uh, out of the premise once you had it for the curious realities at duology. But I am curious, uh, what images, like what was the spark of the idea uh, that led to uh, kind of this remix of Alice in Wonderland and now uh, Through the Looking Glass as well? I think it was just the idea of something beyond what we can see. Like we believe in we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, and yet we cannot see him. And yet it is our faith that that guides us. And obviously there's evidence to the truth we believe, right? But at the same time, we are believing in something that is beyond our realm. We cannot see him. We we are we we're not Thomas. We can't like go look at the Lord's 
wounds in his hands. But at the same time, we believe absolutely that that happened. And I think it's that image of believing in the unseen. There is a scene in the Wonderland trials where Alice is looking for Wonderland and she's trying to find the entrance and being able to see Wonderland. And she enters this church and there's just this picture in this moment of church being this, this almost like fantastical fairy tale place. And it, it really is, I mean, not to, not to bash modern churches or churches that are in strip malls or more modern buildings. Like absolutely. We, we meet, we gather, God meets with us wherever we're gathering together, but there's something so beautiful and magical about the original old designs of churches with their stained glass windows and there's beauty there. There's magic there. And that is where Alice discovers Wonderland is in that kind of beautiful, magical place, which I realized when I was writing it was a little on the nose that she goes into a church and finds Wonderland. But at the same time, it was also perfect and fit the moment and it was exactly what it needed to be. And so I think it's just that image of seeing God believing in the impossible because with God, all things are possible and being able to see that even though you can't see it. And that's really what Alice begins to really unravel as she goes through the second book and the conclusion to the series, which is the looking glass illusion is trying to figure out what is real. uh, And finally, you know, really discovering that without giving spoilers in the end of what is real versus what she's seen as beautiful. Wonderland is beautiful to her, but just like what what we think we know of heaven or what we think we know of God, we really can't imagine or understand. It's beyond our understanding as humans to really comprehend that that beauty and that awesomeness and the vastness of the Lord, what we have awaiting for us in heaven. And that image, I think, is really what what played a role for me in discovering alongside Alice, as I wrote, what Wonderland was really supposed to be. Sarah spoke earlier about the need for discerning stories, discerning popular culture, the perfect opening for our second sponsor. Once again, The Pop Culture Parent is a nonfiction book about fiction co-authored by yours truly, as well as Ted Turneau and Dr. Jared Moore. Uh, This resource for parents or anyone with kids or anyone seeking to train the next generation in discerning the mess of pop culture around us It is essential. We go through five simple questions that you can ask yourself, uh, the grown-up, a Christian reader, uh, and then also help teach your kids to start thinking in these patterns as they're engaging the stories and songs in our mixed-up world. Uh, Stories and songs that include both the common grace that God has put in the world because people are made in his image, even if they reject him, but also the idols that people cannot help cramming in alongside the good stuff in these stories and songs and games and all of that. Uh, one must disentangle these and not just trying to find balance between legalism and license or just using these things for entertainment or edification. Uh, it is all about uh, the glory of Jesus Christ and our good as his people training one another because we know that we have been put into the world to help the world, uh, not just called out of the world uh, to stay clean from it. It is a mess out there, folks. And so you need help in the body of Christ. And that was the pop culture parent is designed to do. You can get this resource from newgrowthpress.com. That is our publisher or see the links in our show notes for this episode for the pop culture parent. All right, Sarah, back to Wonderland. Chapter two, how may literary foolishness point to real truth? Naturally, we've already touched on some of this, 
Uh, but I was curious what you had found out about the author of Alice in Wonderland, one Charles Ludwig. 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 I tried to like German that up, and I don't know how. I don't know how to do any German accent. Let's just start over and do it into plain English, even if I mispronounce it. Charles Ludwig's Doge son, which I think is not only his original last name, uh, but also the name of a cryptocurrency. Uh, better known, of course, is Lewis Carroll. Um, what did you find out about this uh, very eclectic sort? Uh, wasn't he into math and all of that? Like, and what are some maybe urban legends that turned up that I might accidentally repeat if I'm not careful? Yes, math was huge in Wonderland. And as a non-math person, that really scared me when I first started writing. And I thought, how am I going to be able to capture this? I do not want to do math. I have no interest in spending my time figuring any of that out. And so I started to explore and watch documentaries and uh, do, I did a class kind of like an online free course um, about like children's literature. And it explored a little bit of the themes in Alice in Wonderland and all rumors aside about Lewis Carroll and, and what he may or may not have been uh, on uh, or some of the things that people have said about him with his relation to the Liddell children, um, specifically with his relation to Alice Liddell. Um, all of that aside, I do think that uh, there is there is truth to be found in Wonderland and that verse, First um, Corinthians one eighteen, for the word of the cross is cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, now, obviously, I or I. I don't think that this is a verse that Lewis Carroll um, was thinking about when he was was writing Alice in Wonderland. But I think for us as Christians, we can look at a story like this and we can see Alice. She's all she wants is to get away from her boring sister who only reads books without pictures. And she wants to go live in a world of her own where people, you know, talk to flowers and everything is nonsense and everything is silly. She wants to go live in a cartoon. And then she gets to that cartoon and realized, be careful what you wish for, because this is ridiculous. And it's sort of her journey of growing up, kind of like that. As Christians, we start out with spiritual milk and then we need the meat. And I think we can really see that in Alice's journey where she's going along and realizing, actually, I just want to be home and maybe books without pictures aren't so bad. And she grows up through that. And so all rumors about Lewis Carroll, some of those things I've heard, too, about him um, and kind of his odd relationship in photographing the Liddell children and how Wonderland really came about, um, I think it's more important to kind of look at what truths we can as Christians and what we can gain. Children's literature, classic literature uh, really has so many things, whether we're five years old or 65 years old, for us to learn and gain from. And I truly believe that no matter the story, whether the author intended to point back to Christ or not, the story is either pointing to Christ or it's pointing to our need for Christ. And I think Lewis Carroll, whether intentionally or not, uh, through Alice's story, uh, is pointing to our need for Christ and is pointing to our need for truth. I just pulled up the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica article about Lewis Carroll, who died in uh, 1898, and it uh, concludes by saying that by the time of his death, uh, Alice had become the most popular children's book in England. And by the time of his centenary in 1932, it was one of the most popular and perhaps the most famous in the world. There is no answer to the mystery of Alice's success. Many explanations have been suggested, but like the Mad Hatter's riddle, the riddle, as originally invented, had no answer at all. They are no more than afterthoughts. 
The book is not an allegory. It has no hidden meaning or message, either religious, political, or psychological, as some have tried to prove, and its only undertones are some touches of gentle satire. And there's a little bit more there, at least as the encyclopedia article writer summarizes it. I, I wanted to push back a little bit there in what this person said, because like, how do you know for absolutely certain that it has no hidden meaning or message? Like every story has some hidden meaning or message, uh, not a message like this was made to get across some propaganda. Uh, if Lewis Carroll was trying that, it obviously failed because it uh, didn't work. I, I think people have even wrung from the stone of the Wizard of Oz uh, more political overtones than that. It does seem to be what uh, has been described as nonsense literature. And yet, obviously, as you mentioned, Sarah, it, people have loved it for something that it seems to be saying anyway. And I really do think that that does speak to a universality of the human experience. We like nonsense. We like wordplay. We like goofiness and games uh, and bright colors and grinning creatures who vanish and a lot of things that have become tropes for a reason. Uh, it's fascinating, even in anime, to see how many Alice in Wonderland tropes are just in anime. Something about it appeals to people and it gets into our imaginations. And if nothing else, I think it's almost a, a cousin of the beauty apologetic is that God has put something into us that resonates with this, that cannot be explained by natural evolution or godless uh, theories about the origins of humanity. There's something in us that is beyond us, that is beyond the material that goes for these kinds of symbols and imaginations, even when they seem to have no obvious logical meaning. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% I agree with that. I mean, it, people can say what they want about there being no allegory or hidden message, but even C.S. Lewis himself talked about how Narnia is not an allegory, right. how it's a supposal. And Aslan was not meant to represent Christ. And yet we see Christ in Aslan. We see Christ in that sacrificial love. And so with Alice in Wonderland, I would just push back and say, whatever Lewis Carroll was trying to do or not, or whatever people want to say he was doing or not, whether he was a believer or not, we cannot help but the fact that we are the creation of the creator. Whether you're a believer or you're a non-believer, you're still the creation of the creator. And you can try to remove him. You can try to push back and put your own ideas in there. But at the same time, it's still going to reflect either Christ or your need for Christ. And so that is what I would say, intentionally or not, whatever people want to draw from the silliness or the foolishness or the nonsense of Alice in Wonderland, it still is going to point back to our need for a creator because it is created by the creation of the creator. I think whether or not there was a intentionally hidden meaning or not, which it sounds like he didn't intentionally do that. There is a presumed meaning. You know, there are presumed truths that Lewis Carroll may not even be aware of that he was putting into the story because we're, like you said, we, we are a creator's creation. And so what we create is going to reflect what is real or it's going to contrast what is real and true and show us that, oh, that this is what the world would look like if there wasn't God, which we know there is a God. And so that's why this doesn't resonate. I think especially this desire we have to seek patterns and meaning really is what points, perhaps more than anything else, is that we see this world of nonsense and we say, wait, wait a minute, what, what connects this to, uh, to something solid and real? You know, we, we have that desire to try to find a pattern, to try to find 
to make sense of nonsense. And I think that more than anything else is really what shows, you know, how it says God has set eternity in our hearts. So I, I think even by diving into a world like this, whatever we can say of the world, like just the experience we have going through this is what really shows us how God has left his, his fingerprints on all of us. So I just realized that Alice in Wonderland would not work if it was just Wonderland. Then it would be a nonsense story. But from my memory of the originals, you do have, of course, the viewpoint character, a normal person in this zany nonsense scape. And that's your grounding. Uh, that is your tie back to the real world as you're diving into this uh, mess of nursery rhyme characters and you know grinning creatures and mad hatters and whatnot. Sarah, you, however, are not doing a straight-up retelling, as I understand, of Alice in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass. Would you characterize this as what they would call a fairy tale retelling? Or is this, a, I guess I accidentally used a term earlier, it's my term, not yours necessarily, remix? Like, How would you describe, then, what your two books, uh, how they relate to the originals, which are, of course, in the public domain and perfectly free to be retold and remixed uh, as much as folks like? Yeah, I think retelling is the easier term to use when you're talking about marketing because people immediately know what that means. I would say more of my stories are inspired by. So they don't necessarily follow the same plot line. They have similar elements, and I like to write down all the elements as I'm researching and then to figure out how does this fit into my story and into my world. And so I think I would say it would make more sense to say my stories are very much inspired by Alice in Wonderland rather than a retelling because as much as I might try to fit inside that box of the plot line of Alice in Wonderland or the Little Mermaid or whatever it is that I'm retelling or remixing it's really more a loose retelling because it is more inspired by that world inspired by those characters but then it takes on its own a mind of its own. I think people are more accustomed to that idea, particularly because of, of the notion now uh, you're a big uh, a classic Disney fan. I mean, Disney now has been doing retellings of its own stories, which are, of course, themselves adaptations or retellings of the original. You know, the live action Little Mermaid that released this year is going to be a little different from the 1989 Little Mermaid, uh, which is going to be quite different from uh, the original uh, a Danish fairy tale. Uh, so it is with this, it would seem. And that, I think, speaks to the enduring popularity of stories like this, is they can retain some very similar elements, uh, even as they're being kind of passed as if by a new form of oral tradition from person to person. The story can gain more, can be changed uh, you know, if it's in the public domain and it's not uh, intellectual property owned by somebody. Uh, then it can adapt for different audiences. And then, of course, I imagine you would have some stands of the original come along and say, well, you changed this, or Superman should always be smiling. Oh, I'm sorry, it's another grievance I have. You know, people who just want to hold on to the old for the old's own sake uh, without a whole lot of meaning behind it. Now, some people will revise or retell the story, and then they will use this for the agenda, TM. Uh, and then I think naturally that version of the story will not last. Uh, they can throw as much money behind it as they like, uh, but it's not going to last uh, because the meanings of it are ephemeral. Uh, even the nonsense literature of the OG Alice in Wonderland lasts because it seems that, as far as we can tell, he kept everything as apolitical as you could possibly imagine it being. Uh, and so it's going to somewhere deeper uh, than a lot of the struggles or maybe some of the culture wars that we're talking about now. And that's great. You know, we, we need movies and 
board games and books and other things that have no political point to them. <laughs> They're just fun because God created all kinds of good things just for us to enjoy and not to be subservient to uh, political movements. But Sarah, I, I like that the quest that Alice is on, find something beyond what she can see, find what's real, you know, not just finding what is comfortable or makes you powerful or popular, because those are messages that we get in other places that there's no truth but power. But she's on a quest to find the truth because it's presumed that there is such a thing as truth and that truth in and of itself is valuable. So I think that's a great message because, you know, it's, it's like that age old question Pilate asked Jesus, well, what is truth? He doesn't really care what the truth is because what, what does it matter? It, all that matters is he's got a job to do and he's got to fulfill his obligations to Rome and keep the peace and whatever, but it, it doesn't really matter to him what truth is. It's just what power is. So I, I like that that is a um, kind of a macro theme that you've got baked in there. And that, that verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, you know, sometimes the truth can, can seem foolish to others, but it, it's the power of salvation. It doesn't matter how it looks. If it's real, it's going to work. If it's real, it's going to hold up. What would you say in the looking glass illusion it is, is sort of the macro theme? It, is it still a continuation of that or is there something kind of different that you're exploring? Yeah, it's the continuation of really figuring out what is real and where is the real wonderland. Uh, in the first book, um, a character uh, or an idea, I should say, is introduced about this Ivory King character and who is the real w ruler of Wonderland. And so Alice and her team are trying to figure that out. They believe that if they find the real w ruler of Wonderland, that it will fix everything, that they'll be able to uh, see what's real. And I don't want to give spoilers uh, as to what actually happens at the end, but that's kind of their search, their search for who is actually in charge here. And they can fix everything. If we can just find uh, who's who's really kind of, you know, in re reference to Wizard of Oz, who's behind the curtain, who who's, who's controlling everything. And if we could just find that person, um, then everything will be fine. And so that's really the overarching arching theme for the looking glass illusion along with just facing your fears and not letting your fears control you and overcoming that um you know and we we have to do that as christians is sometimes we don't trust the lord to pull through for us and we don't trust him to take care of us and so we let our fears dictate how we act or what we do and alice and her team have to kind of discover that as they go through this final trial in the looking glass illusion of facing their fears um, because they truly believe that whatever it is or whoever it is that is the real ru ruler of wonderland is worth conquering those fears to find Amen to all of that. I think, a faithful listener, you're going to want to talk about uh, both of these books in the Curious Reality series, The Wonderland Trials and The Looking Glass Illusion. And you're going to want to talk about this episode. And a fantastic place to do that is our third sponsor, the Lorehaven Guild. That is our exclusive Discord castle with secret entrances. And if you want the password, you will need to subscribe free to the Lorehaven emails. Just go to lorehaven.com. Sign up with the subscribe box to stick your email address in there. We keep it secret. We keep it safe. And you can keep secret and safe the exclusive invitation code that you get for the guild. Once you are portaled into the guild castle, you can also join monthly book quests. We have a curated community with dedicated uh, quest leaders. 
who will go through a new Christian-made fantastical novel every month. Uh, this month, for example, we're going through a book called The Beast of Talisend, a, uh, an amazing story. It's about magic and rediscovering magic. Uh, and then next month, we just announced early, so you can get a copy of this uh, out-of-print book early if you want to participate, um, a spooky fantasy with Nazis, a prison mine, a torture <laughs> furnace, and people trying to do the right thing despite all the problem of evil uh, that men have uh, in the 1940s Germany world. This is called Koenig's Fire, and we're going to start that in the first week of October. So sign up at lorehaven.com and join the Lorehaven Guild and portal into the Guild Castle. Sarah, back out here in the wilds of Wonderland, uh, Chapter 3. I'm curious what readers have been saying, and then later on we'll ask uh, what is next in your creative journey. Uh, Zach wasn't able to make it, but I was at the launch uh, party uh, for your first book, The Wonderland Trials, in this series. Uh, that was in Atlantic City at the Realm Makers uh, last summer, 2022, it was. Yes. And uh, amongst the challenges of the conference, I got to witness then the wonders of whimsy and the games. Like the launch party was just perfectly tailored. You and your friends did an amazing job planning that, uh, doing this treasure hunt all across the room. And people were really getting into it. And of course, there was that element of competition. And, you know, if, if you win, you get to share your swag on social media and such. And it just, I think, brought to life uh, what the book is about and uh, really helped to present those symbols uh, in, uh, in a, sim a simulacrum of reality there. Uh, what have people been saying, not just at that launch party, but then afterwards? And I'm giving you full permission. It's okay to brag on yourself. I'm just curious what the reader reaction is. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of different reader reactions. Uh, for the most part, uh, the, what people have said personally to me is that they love the allegory behind it and the spiritual themes that they've that they've seen in the book, and they've asked me, "Well, how did you how did you weave the allegory in so well?" And I just say, "I didn't. Uh, God did, because I've always struggled with allegory. I've struggled with spiritual theme and trying to figure out how to put something in my book." without sounding preachy or cheesy or too on the nose. And so I really struggle with that. And so when readers ask me, how do you put this beautiful allegory in there? Uh, how do you weave that into your stories? I just say, I, I don't, I can't take credit for it. God never really reveals that true spiritual theme to me until right before deadline. And so to answer them, uh, I, I appreciate the praise. I appreciate the compliments and that the allegory is speaking to them. Uh, recently with the looking glass illusion, an early reader asked me if I meant to put in a symbol picture or allegory about the Jews and the Gentiles. And I had to step back and think, actually, I did not mean to do that. It's in there. I see it in there. And the reader saw it in there and she loved it. And it really spoke to her and touched her heart. But that is all God. I cannot take credit for it. Uh, I am just the writer. He is really the creator of my stories and he's telling them through me. And so I'm so grateful that my readers really love love that aspect of my stories. But I, I can't take credit for it whatsoever. I think that really speaks to our meta theme here about how fictional stories reflect curious realities, because even going back to Lewis, who, of course, we've name checked a few times because it's fantastical truth. Uh, you, Sarah, mentioned the quote where Lewis said, like, I'm not trying to write allegory. This is a supposal. And Lewis goes through kind of his three step program for how he came up with Narnia. And he said, first, everything started with images. OK, so he didn't start off with 
gee, I really think that the kids these days are into some naughty stuff and they don't need, they need to be more Christian. So I need to really reach the kids with my new uh, youth program. I think I'll write some fairy tales. They seem to be into those. Well, they weren't into those. Lewis was going against the trends at that time. Uh, Lewis started instead with the pictures that he'd had since he was a kid. Uh, and then he decided, okay, how am I going to adapt the pictures? You know, a picture is just raw. I need to curate this. Well, I'm, I'm going to come up with a form. And the form is going to be the fairy story or the fantasy uh, at the child level, but certainly accessible to others. And then only after that, in step three, he said, did the man come in? That is Lewis's role of himself and his responsibility as a Christian and as a citizen. And at that point, he said kind of what you might dare to call the message or a, a message, a meaning to the madness uh, came into the creative process. But he saved that for last. And it sounds like what you're describing here is that these things just seem to happen naturally. Call it the Holy Spirit or call it the imagination just being faithful to truth and then God being active somehow in that process. I think that's marvelous. And I think it's something that Christian readers need to be educated about. Uh, lest they, um, <laughs> at the risk of saying this, like view the author as some, you know, magical person you know who can uh, weave in the allegory and then and then the christian at least some christian readers god bless them they go in like looking for the allegory and they want to pull things apart and they're like okay and, you know i liked this stuff i like the stuff about wonderland and the games and the wonder gene and all that but but where's the meat you know where's the really good stuff and i'm like the story is the good stuff uh if we gave it to you straight that would be non-fiction and that's the reason why we have fiction in addition to non-fiction is that both have different goals one generally appeals more to the head, and then fiction more generally appeals to the heart, uh, but also to the head, especially if it's a really good book. So I live in both worlds, uh, and I'm glad that you do too. I like to say that our faith is going to be the natural fingerprint onto our stories. So for writers who are struggling and saying, well, I really can't figure out how to put my faith in my stories, Steve Lobby of Enclave Publishing and also my agent says, what makes Enclave Books Christian are the authors. We're not trying to insert some kind of spiritual meaning in our books. It's just there because we are Christians. And so for anybody out there who's listening to this and struggling to put those themes in their stories, I would just say, let the story be what it is, then take a step back from it and see that your faith is going to naturally put itself onto your stories because that is part of who you are. That's why at Lorehaven, we're careful when we say Christian fiction. Almost inevitably, I'll just put a hyphen made in the middle of that, and I'll say Christian made fiction. Just like you said, uh, Sarah, just like Steve Lobby said, the Christian is the individual, and the individual, in a sense, redeems the story often without knowing it, because if you've got that biblical truth in your world building for yourself, uh, the foundation of the gospel is there, and you do all that, uh, what an author would call world building, you know, all the materials, uh, all the cheat sheets that show who has what eye color and what their parents' uh, names were and when they were born and all of that and where they're from, like stuff the story may not even include, but details that are part of the foundation of that world. If the gospel is there, then it's going to be in the story, just like any other world building, even if you don't see it uh, boldly reflected on screen. Uh, it is something that does suffuse the story with Christianity, just like your life is suffused with Christianity, uh, with Christ. Uh, even if you go through the whole day uh, without uh, saying a prayer or consciously thinking the name of Jesus, like, yeah, we probably ought to think of it more consciously, think of him more consciously. But 
uh, so long as he is there, uh, then our lives are Christians, uh, just like the stories we enjoy are Christian. Sarah, I'm curious, just in general, why do you love fairy tales, whether it's the the classic ones or the, the retellings or the, the Disney versions? Like, what is it about fairy tales that you like so much? I think the Bible is a fairy tale, but it's all true. I mean, we have the line um, from The Princess Bride where the grandfather is trying to convince his grandson to let him read him the story. And he talks about sword fights, giants, revenge, true love, miracles. I mean, that is the Bible. There's a witch of Endor. And yet all of this really happened. And so I think fairy tales are simply a model after the original fairy tale. Of course, the original fairy tale. Jesus saves the princess. My my husband likes to say, um, and I think he's quoting somebody here, so he doesn't take credit for it. It might be G.K. Chesterton, but he says, the whole story of the Bible is slay the dragon and save the princess. The Bible is a fairy tale, and we are living out that fairy tale as Christians. It, we have darkness and light, and I think that's what draws me to fairy tales is because as we see the common theme of good versus evil in all the fairy tales that we come across, whether the world wants to call them worldly or secular or make them our own, they all have the same theme of good triumphing over evil. And I think that is what draws me to fairy tales in that, like Henry says from the show, Once Upon a Time, good always wins. Sarah, amen to that. Now I need to ask for spoilers. Please spill all of the tea from the Wonderland Tea Party. What is next for you creatively? Can you announce a book name, a release date, uh, a major plot twist at the end? Is there anything that you can reveal to us to this day? I can reveal very little. Uh, my, okay. my lips are sealed for the most part, but I can say I have a four-book contract with Enclave Publishing for a uh, four-book series with the books all set in the same world. The first book releases in 2025, and every book in the series is inspired by a fairy tale paired with a story from classic literature. And the first book in that series is one of my all-time favorite fairy tales that I have been waiting to write, along with one of my all-time favorite stories from classic literature, I'm in the midst of drafting it right now. I'm really excited about it, and I can't wait for readers to see what I've been working on. All right. Fantastical Truth listeners, you've heard it here first. Sarah Ella will write four books next. Uh, the first one is going to be a mashup of X and Y, and it releases in Z 2025. So you only get uh, the, the most secretive exclusive information here uh sarah thank you so much for sharing uh go get the books that are available now the curious realities duology the first book is the wonderland trials and then that concludes with the looking glass illusion which just released today so sarah we'll send you back through the wardrobe i don't know if you're going back to narnia or back to england i don't know what side we're on but we appreciate you joining us on this side thank you so much for having me it was great being here thanks for joining us Well, I loved everything Sarah said there at the end about why she loves fairy tales. Jesus truly is the greatest fairy tale hero uh, that's ever been written about. And what do you know? It's a true fairy tale. It's a true myth. And so to you, our listener, what are some of your favorite fairy tales? Why do you like them? Uh, what are the fairy tale retellings that you've enjoyed? <laughs> uh, we, we try to focus on the stories we love. So what have you really liked? What adaptations have you really enjoyed seeing of your favorite fairy tales? Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com 
or you can comment on this episode page or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and I'm still calling it Twitter. Yes, we're always going to call it Twitter, I think. We're going to be basically Luddite in that way. Uh, but fairy tales uh, help us to think of fantastical worlds beyond the technology, which leads me to our mission update. Uh, what's new at lorehaven.com? What do you know? Another inspired by of another fairy tale, a little bit of a lesser known one in our new review we just posted for a fantasy called Rot of Silver and Ravens. You want to go over and check that out. Uh, most Fridays, we have new reviews at Lorehaven, only the best Christian-made fantastical novels we can find, including all fantasy and science fiction. And of course, uh, not just in spooky season, we'll get some paranormal and horror stuff in there. Even some articles about how, yes, you can, as a Christian, explore horror for redemptive Christ-exalting purposes, which includes, by the way, our new book quest. We haven't started it yet. Uh, we just announced it a little early, as I mentioned uh, earlier about the guild for Koenig's Fire a uh, bit of an older title uh, set in 1940s Germany in which one man is recruited to heat the furnace seven times hotter for extremely wicked purposes by an extremely wicked, famously so, World War II era empire. Uh, and that's the story of Koenig's Fire by Mark Schooley. We're going to start that in early October, even while we have another book quest going on for The Beast of Taliesend. We started it early because it's a little harder to find the copies of the books, but I've actually now been in touch with the author who has copies of the books. So if you join the Lorehaven Guild and then send us your info, we can get you a copy of that. I very tentatively announced that here, but it is exclusive only to Heroes of the Guild Castle. And you can, of course, get that exclusive invitation by subscribing free at lorehaven.com. You don't need a subscription, but you should get one anyway to get our new articles, such as the one that Tisha Messing just wrote called How to Help Your Teens Engage dystopian tales uh it is now the season of fall uh which leads one's thoughts to the fall of civilization so of course even kids are reading these stories uh how do we engage with some of the tropes and uh, how do we find the best ones by christian authors uh, tisha explores all of that in her article and as i mentioned yeah subscribe free to get updates not just for the guild but for every podcast episode if you want it every review if you want it and uh, any of the other articles and news and other content that we're sharing Next on this podcast, Fantastical Truth, Vincent is so done with art and all that, but his mom and uncle just won't stop going on about the amazing colors and composition of great masters like his namesake. Then his little sister disappears into a famous painting. What is a lad to do? Join us for this fantastic journey beneath the swirling sky with homeschool mom and middle grade author Karen Liloglu. Meanwhile, if you fall into a rabbit hole, wisdom says do not eat or drink the first thing that you see, even if the label encourages this. Exercise discernment in all that you read, even in a world that's full of nonsense and ridiculousness. Look for the firm foundation of truth and then enjoy the whimsical stuff, not for its own sake, but for the glory of Jesus Christ as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>